started uh, this morning, I want to look at a rather, a rather difficult and uncomfortable passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And Jeremy already set the context for us in our scripture reading. So let's jump right into the reading of our sermon text, which is Acts chapter 5, verse number 1 through 11. It says... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. How many are made uncomfortable by that text? And I'll raise my hand because I'm a little uncomfortable by it. I love the book of Acts because it's not just the history of the early church, the first century church, but it's our history. It's the history of how New Testament Christianity was established and spread throughout the known world in the first century. So this, this is important. God put that in there for a reason. There's something he wants us to know and understand, which is why that's in the Bible. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. All your judgments are right and true. Everything contained in it, Lord, we believe and we affirm that it is your word. It is for our equipping. It is for our admonishing. It is to make us better followers of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, uh, give us much grace and wisdom as we look at this text and uh, let us see its beauty, um, how logically compelling it is, how right it is, how true it is, how useful for the Christian life it is. Let us walk closer with you as a result of it. Lord, set aside the human messenger, and I pray that the text uh, would speak through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how their situation posed a threat to the church in its infancy and how God dealt with it. And we'll see what we can learn from it. I have six points this morning. Uh, we won't exactly move through the text in like verse by verse, but we'll rather move through it in a thematic manner. So point number one, the context of Barnabas. Point number two, the craftiness of Ananias. 
Point number three, the culpability of Sapphira. Point number four, the confrontation of Peter. Point number five, the condemnation of God. Point number six, the consecration of the church. So point number one, the context of Barnabas. So this verse, and I skipped over it when I read it, uh, it begins with, with uh, but, but a man named Ananias. What's spoken of in Acts chapter five is being contrasted with something that precedes it. But you have to see what are the various things, the various stories that are being contrasted in the Bible here. Jeremy read for us our scripture starting our scripture reading starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And I want to take another look at it. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's the context that you need to know. Evidently, the end of chapter 4 shows us that the church of Jerusalem was going through a time of incredible spiritual growth marked by hospitality and generosity that helped the church survive in its time of need and early persecution. And the text focuses on the end at one man, Joseph, who was also, also called Barnabas. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field, and he brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's everything you need to know about Barnabas in this text. First, he was a Jewish Christian. He's a Levite. He's a Greek Jew, because he's not from Jerusalem, right? He's from Cyprus. And he has a Greek name, Joseph. He was given another name by the apostles, which, which was Barnabas. Not because it's easier to say, or it's a more popular name, or a nickname or a pet name like Buddy or Pal or Champ. This text tells us specifically that the name they, that they called him meant the son of encouragement. I think also that Barnabas was on the younger side if they felt familiar and comfortable enough to refer to him as a son. And we see that uh, later in his life, he's still laboring with his own hands and supporting his own ministry. So that leads me to believe that he was a little bit younger. And it's apparent that Barnabas had disposable assets, a field which he sells to meet the needs of others in the church. The thing about this text that most endears Joseph or Barnabas to me is the fact that the apostles gave him a name that meant son of encouragement. What an honor that might have been for him. So the text gives us this impression of this younger person who has the inclination and the ability to encourage others within the church. And young people, especially boys and men, don't usually have an inclination towards encouragement. It's usually older people who have been weathered and humbled by life that become good at encouragement. So when a young person has that gift and that ability, it's a very valuable gift for the church. Let me give you an example. Uh, recently, we renovated our church nursery. And after it was mostly done, the best and most valuable encouragement that I received was from a kid who was probably seven or eight years old, 
who comes to the homeschool group. And this little boy sought me out to tell me how much he loved the nursery, how much he loved the wood floor, how much he loved the color of the paint and the rugs, and just how nice it would be for the little kids. And you know, like all this effusive praise coming from a little kid, and that encouraged me. You can ride the wave of that encouragement for the next month if you had to, and got no other encouragement, right? That kid is a Barnabas. He's, he's a son of encouragement. And Barnabas also, he literally puts his money where his mouth is. He sells, he sells a field, he brings the proceeds, he lays it at the apostles' feet, like, here you go, uh, use this to sustain the needs of the people in the church. Barnabas quite literally creates a name for himself, or rather, God creates a name for him. The apostles refer to him as Barnabas. He's a blessing and an encouragement to the church. You need to know that context as we look at chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 be- begins with, with the word but. And this is not what we call one of the blessed buts in Scripture. It's a tragic but, because we will see a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias. And I believe that's why it's written this way. So point number two is the craftiness of Ananias. Ananias and his wife Sapphira are part of the church in Jerusalem. And outwardly, we see some similarities between Ananias and Barnabas. This text will uh, use that to highlight the contrast between them. It's, it's telling us the similarities between what they did so that you notice where they were different. Ananias also has disposable assets, just like Barnabas. He has a field to sell. He also sells it, just like Barnabas. And just like Barnabas, he laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. But unlike Barnabas, he keeps back some of the proceeds for himself. So scripture is showing us that there's a connection between these two stories by repeating the similarities and making clear the glaring contrast, which is the craftiness or the sinfulness of Ananias' heart in this matter. So do you understand what's going on? Let, let me try to make it clear if it's not. In chapter 4, Barnabas is recognized as someone who is gifted and valuable in the church. Barnabas sells his disposable assets and brings the money to the apostles. Then Ananias does the same, except he keeps back some for himself. So it's like Ananias sells his field, and let's say he gets 100 pieces of gold for it. He keeps half of it, and he brings the other half to the church, um, and at one of their meetings, he presents it to the apostles. Like, here you go, guys. I did the same thing that Barnabas did. Now, I want to be clear, and I think the point is clear in the text, too. The problem with Ananias' action is not the amount he gives. I want you to be very, very clear on that. The problem is the deceitfulness of his giving. Peter says in verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias, the field was yours. The money was yours. You were free to do whatever you wanted. Nobody asked you for your money. Nobody forced you to give. Nobody guilted you into giving it. And that leads me to conclude that the problem is the way that he gave, the heart behind his giving. He must have given people the impression that he sold the field and is giving all the money to the apostles. It's like he walks in and says, apostles, I need to have a meeting with you before the service. Okay, what is it, brother Ananias? Well, I want to give you this money for the ministry. Wow, that's a lot of money. Where'd you get this money from, Ananias? And he goes, well, I had this field. I wasn't doing anything with it. 
and the Lord laid it on my heart to sell it and give all the money to the church. And Peter knows that's a lie. So why would Ananias manufacture this scheme in his heart? He didn't have to sell the field. That's clear in scripture. He could have sold it and kept all the money. He could have sold it and kept all the money and just increased his giving a little bit if he wanted to. Why go through the spectacle of presenting the money to the apostles under these false pretenses that you sold your assets to prosper the church with the entirety of the money? Why lie? Why manufacture this sin? There was no reason for this. I guess you could say that he lied because sin makes us do foolish and immoral things. And that's true, but I think the text gives us some more insight into what's going on. So here's my educated guess, and you could tell me if you agree with me or not later. Um, I think the two situations, Barnabas and Ananias, are related. They're contrasted. Barnabas gives in a good, generous, encouraging, and edifying way. And Ananias gives in a bad, deceitful, or selfish way. But the connection between these two stories is this, that when someone like Ananias sees someone like Barnabas, they want to get the praise and the honor and the benefits that he has without making the same sacrifice that he has made. Right? Isn't that true sometimes of our lives? Like you see someone who is younger than you or maybe less experienced or well-rounded, less qualified than you. Maybe sometimes even in church, you think she's not even been at church as long as I've been. In Barnabas's case, it could be he's not even Hebrew like us. He's, he's Greek. But he's getting the honor. He sits down with the pastors and guess what? They don't encourage him. He encourages them. The pastors get up and they give testimony to what a blessing Barnabas is to them. And that would drive you nuts, right? We're like, why does Barnabas get a key to the church and I don't, right? We want the honor and the status and the reputation that he has. But sometimes we want the quick route to the top. We want the glory without the sacrifice. That's what Ananias is after, I think. Hey, praise me. Honor me like you did to Barnabas, but I'm going to deceive my way into it. Look, look, see, I did the same thing he did. I sold my field. I, I gave you the money. What, what do you want from me? Here's all the money I got for it. it you, you understand what's going on here, right? It's not just that he lies. It's not just that he makes a show of his giving. It's not just that he lacks integrity. It's that he's emulating what Barnabas does in the previous chapter, but he's doing it with a heart that has no regard for God. And that's a great sin. You know, something that as Baptists, that's something we ought to think about. A criticism that you may have heard about Baptists is that we're only concerned about numbers, the number of people sitting in the pews and the amount of money in the offering plate. American churches and their congregants sort of relate to each other on those ground rules, like you show up once a week, you give some money, and we'll leave you alone. But, but God's concerns are deeper than that. He cares about what's in our hearts when we're gathered in this place. 
Peter says in verse 3, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you've lied not to man but to God. Ananias, you think the extent of your actions here is your impropriety in dealing with another person. You think you've just told a lie to Peter. But Ananias, I've got news for you. You've told a lie to God. It's not to say that Peter is standing in, in the place of God or that he's like the Pope, but rather that what's done in the church and to the church is something that God takes very personally. The reverence or the lack thereof that you bring into this place, that I bring into this place, the integrity of heart or the deception of heart with which we walk into the service, God takes that personally. The church is the kingdom that God is building, the people that he is gathering, the bride he is marrying, the body through which he works, and what's done unto the church is done unto God. Finally, on this point of Ananias' craftiness, note that the text belabors that he doesn't act alone. And this is really important. So with that, let's move on to the third point, the culpability of his wife, Sapphira. The text belabors that point. I'm not just overemphasizing it. Verse 1 says Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Verse 2 says, with his wife's knowledge, kept back some of the proceeds for himself. So we must interpret from these verses that his wife has a knowledge of his sin and his wife is at some level a participant in his sin. And I want to take some time applying this point because it's so important. It's, I say this to myself, but men and women, um, we must be careful who we marry because your spouse can either be your greatest motivator in your sanctification and walking with God, or they can be your greatest ally in your sin and walking away from the Lord, right? Some of us in this room know the heartache of having a spouse who wants to lead you into sin or lead you away from the Lord or lead you to be a willing participant in their sin. And you know what a lonely and heartbreaking road that is to walk. And in some instances, even when people are careful and they try to do everything right, they still end up with a train wreck of a spouse. And, and that's not your fault. And God knows that. You know, spouses are supposed to balance each other in this way, that when the husband takes his focus off the Lord, the wife encourages him to get his eyes back on the Lord. When the wife puts her focus on the world and not on the Lord, the husband encourages her to put her attention back on the Lord. And so they help each other and balance each other and sanctify one another. So what a tragic thing it is here when the husband and wife are partners in sin. When you sin together with someone and you're both believers, heed this warning, whether it's with spouses or with kids or with your friends or with your boss or your coworkers, when you sin together, when you participate in each other's sin, you will ruin and compromise that relationship for years to come and sometimes forever. Sometimes there's no recovery of that because you will destroy your trust in one another. And I've heard this story too many times that Let's say, for example, let me use this example, that a Christian couple were dating and they were physically involved or sexually involved before marriage. It ends up compromising their ability to trust one another within the marriage because it creates this distrust among them. It's like, if you sin in this manner with me, how do I know you won't sin in this manner against me? 
And if you think that I don't have the life experience to make such a bold claim, you go ask Pastor Mike about it. And I'm, I'm not a betting man, but I bet you every $2 bill that I own <laughs> that he has seen that principle play out in the wreckage of marriages over and over and over again. I guarantee you that he has seen it. I've never talked to him about it, but I guarantee you that's true. Because sin will ruin our relationships. The passage doesn't say anything that would allow us to say that Sapphira was an unknowing or unwilling participant in the sin of her husband, or that she would have said, or that she would have corrected him. Oh, but guess what? In that society, women didn't have the status or social capital, and therefore she found herself in this bad situation. No, it belabors the point that she's with her husband. He sinned with her knowledge. She attempts to cover it up for him and lie for him. See, there's a progression of participating in sin that we see here. First, you're with someone at the inception of their sin. And then they're sinning with your knowledge and you do nothing about it. Then you're party to the cover-up of their sin. And then you make that sin your own and you identify and, and you're the one doing it. No Christian gets up one day and says, uh, let me go boldly lie to the apostles about my giving and my motivation. It happens a little bit at a time. It's probably like first Ananias says to his wife, man, Sapphira, we've been at this church two years and nobody recognizes how committed we are. It's all Barnabas this, Barnabas that. I bet if we did the same thing that Barnabas did, people would realize how valuable we are, how much we deserve leadership and how, how they should trust us with the church keys, right? So let's do this. Let's sell that field that you got from your grandfather and uh, let's give the money. So they do, and then Ananias is like, you know what, a uh, hundred pieces of gold, I think we really need to hold on to 50 of them because you know everyone's needy and struggling. You never know if we're gonna go through some financial disaster next. Everyone's going through hard times, but the rest is for the church. And, and they won't know, like how are they gonna know how much we sold it for, right? They don't know the value of our field. So he comes and he presents this money under false pretenses. He does, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But she comes in later, the text says three hours later, unaware of what's happened. And she's oblivious to the mood of the place. Peter even says to her, like, don't, don't you understand? Like, no one's in this room. The ushers are, are outside. Like, didn't you get a sense of what's going on here? And Peter confronts her. And he says, is it true that you sold your field for, let's say, 50 pieces of silver? And this is her opportunity to come clean. This is her get out of jail free card. And this is her opportunity to, to say, no, actually, my husband kept half the money and he was going to present it as if it was all the proceeds of the sale because he was jealous of the honor that Barnabas has been getting. And I didn't really want to go along with him. Where is he, by the way? I was supposed to meet him here. Scripture says, God will not let you be tempted above your ability to bear it, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. And this is her way of escape. This is a divine gift to her, but she rejects it and says, yeah, yeah we sold it for 50 pieces of gold, right? So what my husband said. So she covers for her husband and she makes the lie her own at that point. And Peter says, you both agreed to test the Holy Spirit. And she dies as well. We'll talk about their death in one of the subsequent points. And, you know, I struggled with this, with this text. 
Because in our American minds, what they did almost doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Like God's judgment comes on two people over something that is that in the recesses of my heart, I might not even think it's that big of a deal. And then there's the idea of money and giving that's related to this text. And that's, that's always been misused and mishandled and people get manipulated by this text. So I, I told Pastor I wanted to preach this text but was a little insecure about it. And he encouraged me to go ahead with it. And then I told my small group, I was just waiting for someone to say, no, don't preach that. And then I would have, you know, felt like, okay, I don't have to. But um, they encouraged me and prayed for me. And they told me to preach the word, just preach what the text says with confidence. So I want to belabor this point, lest I be misunderstood. The point of this text is not that the church, this church in particular, nor God himself needs more of your money. Don't get that takeaway. Not at all what I'm saying. Um, the point I want to, you to take away from this is that God is more concerned about our hearts and the way we relate to him in the church. God is, think about this, God is more honored by the dollar that a kid sticks in the offering that's a portion of what he got for doing his chores, which he gives freely and joyfully with no pretenses, giving the money as if he were giving it to God himself. That honors God more than if we were to give hundreds of thousands of dollars, the price of a, the price of a field in New York City, right? And do so with false pretenses and lies and doing it to be noticed. And, and I say that because I truly believe it. And I want you to believe that. I say that on the authority of scripture from this text. That application is clear from this text. God is more honored by small giving done with the right heart than even grandiose giving done with false pretenses and a bad heart. Point number four, Peter's confrontation. As we answer, as we try to answer why their sin is dealt with the way it is. That's, that's what I want to do in this point. First of all, how does Peter know that, like how does he know what the truth is and that Ananias and Sapphira are lying? We're not told. Peter might have known it in a divine way, such as getting a revelation from the Holy Spirit. He was an apostle, after all. He might have known in a common or rational way, such as knowing that the field that they owned could not have been sold for the amount that they claimed to sell it for. He might have had prior knowledge, like someone who helped them to sell it or the buyer of the field happened to tell Peter or it could have been some combination of all three things, special revelation or reasoning or having prior knowledge. Uh, so let's see how Peter responds to them. Verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Then he says to Sapphira in verse number 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Peter's concern here is not that they're lying to him. Uh, we get offended when people lie to us. It's like, oh, you think I'm so stupid that I would believe what you said, right? Like, that offends me that you would lie to me. But Peter's concern here, I believe, is the glory of God in the church. He says in verse 4, you haven't lied to man but to God. Peter's defending the honor and the holiness of God when he confronts them. 
When we're gathered as a church, as a people of God, you need to remember that God is here. The Father is in heaven. Christ ascended back to the Father in heaven. But Christ said, when I go back to the Father, the Father will send you another comforter, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. God is present with and in the church through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the very same essence and being as God. He is not an immaterial force or an unknowable energy. He is a person who is God. And that truth is defended in this passage because Peter tells them twice that they have uh, lied to the Holy Spirit. They have lied to God. And what we do in this place is part of our worship as a church. We are doing it unto God or not doing it unto God. So Ananias dies and the men carry him out. And that's the first time we see ushers in the New Testament. Like, how would you like to be an usher in Peter's church? Uh, what makes Ananias' sin so onerous to Peter is that nobody asked Ananias to sell anything or give anything. So this is something Ananias contrived in his own heart. It's one thing when your circumstances are so bleak and you see no way out of them except to sin. And while that's not right in the eyes of God, there is mercy offered in God's law and among men. The scripture says that men will not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry, yet there will be consequences when he's caught. But here, there's no circumstance that compels Ananias and Sapphira to sin. And nobody is arm-twisting them or guilting them into giving the value of this field. That's clear from what Peter says. Like, you, no one asked you for any money. This is a sin that they have manufactured for themselves from start to finish. And that's what makes it so despicable in the life of a church. And then Peter holds... Sapphira accountable for her part. He confronts her, I believe, attempting to discern if she's a willing participant in this manufactured sin for which there's no reasonable explanation, or is this all solely the doing of her husband leading his wife unwillingly to sin? And she says, yes, we sold it for that much. Yep, what my husband said, that's what happened. It, it's not like, I'm not sure, I, I don't know, I wasn't there, he doesn't talk about the financial matters with me. No, nope, it's, it's yep for, for this price. And, and Peter says, you've done the same thing as your husband, you've lied to God. You lie to Peter, okay, not a big deal, but, but that's not what's going on. You're lying in your interaction with the church, and that's something that God takes personally. And she dies too, and the ushers carry her out. The ushers have a busy day here. I think it's very interesting that it's Peter confronting them here. You know why? Because he himself is the most impulsive apostle. The text talks about lying to God. Well, what did Peter do on the day of Christ's crucifixion? He was right there. He had been with Christ three years. And he lied about knowing God. His lie was so substantial and aggressive. A servant girl asked him, are you one of his followers from Galilee? And what does he do? He denies it three times. He calls down curses on himself. Like, I swear to everything good and true that I do not know this man. May, may God strike me dead if, if, I, if I'm not telling the truth. That's what Peter himself does, right? Now, what do you think is worse? Denying Christ or keeping back the proceeds from the field? I would say Peter's sin of denying Christ is far worse than Ananias' sin of deception. So let's think about that. Is Peter a hypocrite? 
for holding someone accountable for the same sin that he had committed against the Lord? And I would say no. Here's why. There's a few things we can see from Peter's confrontation. First, we see the mercy of God, that Peter was a liar, a coward, and a denier of Christ, and God forgave him, restored him, and equipped him to lead the early church. Secondly, we need to be reminded that the ministry is done in the mercy of God. If it was not for the mercy of God, nobody would be able to stand in this pulpit or any pulpit and preach, because in all our preaching, we would be hypocritical. We would be admonishing others to do what we ourselves as fellow believers struggle to do. But there is mercy with the Lord. You need to see that in Peter's life, that here he is. He was a, a denier at the crucifixion, and now here he is leading the church of Jerusalem. If we don't understand the mercy of God, we could never preach and teach and admonish and counsel and confront if it depended on us being perfect and morally upright. Third, because... You yourself have struggled with and been guilty of a certain sin should not make you excuse it or overlook it in the life of a fellow believer. Because when you struggle through specific sins, you should know above anyone else, you should understand their deceitful and destructive nature and be more mindful of it to warn others of it. And you may look at this and think that Peter is a pretty harsh and zealous pastor of the church. Like, where's compassion and gentleness, right? Why doesn't he come alongside of Ananias first and say, hey, brother, like, I know you're not telling the truth. Let's go in my office and talk about this. Well, let me say this. If you think Peter is a harsh pastor and you're thinking, okay, I, I know he wrote some of the Bible, but I, I'd never go to his church or a church like his let me tell you this, if you think he's a harsh pastor, then try going to a church that's pastored by someone like Ananias. Would you go to that church? And isn't that the trajectory of Ananias's sin? See, Barnabas is recognized by the apostles for his generosity and his encouragement. And Barnabas goes on to be the one who affirms the ministry of Paul. Barnabas becomes a missionary companion of Paul and a leader in the early church. But can you imagine what would have happened if Ananias weaseled his way into recognition and leadership in the early church under false pretenses with deceitfulness and greed and had a wife who participated in sin with him? What kind of a leader or pastor or missionary would Ananias have been? And some of you here know what that's like because you have tragically and sorrowfully left churches where you saw leaders participate in things like financial impropriety, sexual infidelity, or commit spiritual abuse and teach doctrinal heresy. And you know how tragic that is for a church. So Peter may be harsh, but you don't want to be in a church where Ananias is leading. You, you don't. It'll be a disaster for the church and for the souls of the believers in it. It's also worth mentioning that Peter does confront, but it is God who judges and condemns. And that's the, that's the rightful prerogative of God. So point number five, the condemnation of God. We must remember that all the judgments of God are right and true, but God is long-suffering. We, we know from Scripture God is not capricious. He doesn't act without reason or on a purposeless whim. Contemplate, therefore, the journey of 
sin in the life of Ananias and Sapphira, and also in our own lives as well. It's rare that someone wakes up one day and hatches on the spot a plan to deceive one's way into status and recognition within the church. Nobody gets up one day and says, hey, let me execute this elaborate plan to have my cake and eat it too. Let me sell my field and I'll keep some of the money and then I'll make people think what a great and sacrificial leader-like Christian I am. Our, our elaborate sins like that are usually the result of us having visited all those possibilities in our mind, having imagined it, having considered it, having desired it, having talked to others about it, having stewed about it, daydreamed about it, and thought about it hundreds of times, planning how we'll cover it up and never stopping and saying, Lord, I'm struggling with this evil desire in my heart that's plaguing me and I cannot let go of it. Please help me. No, like never stopping to say that. You know that that's how the deceitfulness of sin works in our lives. We never just get up and commit some egregious sin suddenly out of nowhere. Sapphira didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to throw away my faith, my morals, my testimony, and everything in my Christian life and my relationships at church just to follow my husband in his sin. No, you've already gone there a hundred times in your mind before we take a single step in the service of sin. And we don't know how God may have been working in their lives, God, uh, how God may have been getting their attention through the preaching of the word, through the fellowship of the believers, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But God's patience has a limit. It's different limits for different purposes. Uh, scripture says that he who is often corrected and hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without recovery. Now, why don't we see stuff like this today? I think it's because the book of Acts is a transitional book. Many things that we see in the book of Acts, we don't see happening today. Because, and they're not normative for today. That's because the book of Acts shows us the New Testament church in its infancy. You know, when you have an infant, uh, they don't stay as an infant. They grow up. You don't relate to someone the same way when they're an infant as you do when they're 10 years old. The infant is a lot needier and dependent on their parents for provision and protection. The 10-year-old is a little bit more independent. If you had a 10-year-old, you'd probably uh, let your 10-year-old walk to school with his friends, but you wouldn't let an infant do that. You wouldn't let your infant walk anywhere out of, out of your sight. So there's ways that God's, God deals with an infant church, and he doesn't deal with the church the same way now. For example, um, God prescribes in the Gospel of Matthew and 1 Corinthians the process of church discipline. It teaches you how to deal with an Ananias in your church. You confront them regarding their sin. If they don't listen, you take one or two witnesses and talk to them. If they still refuse to listen, you bring the matter before the church. If they still refuse to listen to the church, then you excommunicate them. After that, the Apostle John warns that a professing believer can sin unrepentantly to the point of death. There is a sin unto death, he says. But why doesn't God tell Peter to use the church discipline process against Ananias? Well, it's because the church is in its infancy. The church doesn't have the maturity to employ that process yet. So God circumvents that process and just eliminates Ananias and Sapphira. Secondly, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira serves as an example 
to the church of Jerusalem and every church and individual Christian thereafter. It is our warning that God is serious about the condition of our hearts. It's our warning that God is not to be trifled with. It's a reminder that you cannot buy your way into position and recognition in God's kingdom. It also serves as a warning that the seemingly good actions of professing believers uh, can be sinfully motivated. Therefore, God is after more than our activity. He's after our hearts. It serves as a warning that professing believers are not immune to the judgment of God. Rather, those of us who profess Christ have a greater accountability before God because we profess to know the truth of who he is and what he requires of us. Thirdly, what God is doing is that he's protecting the purity of the church. False teachers and false prophets and people with a distorted gospel will enter the early church. People with bad intentions will eventually come in. But at this point, the New Testament church is so young, it has not built up the resources to protect itself from deception. It doesn't yet have the completed scriptures. It doesn't have a pastoral ordination process. It doesn't have deacons. It doesn't have the older women teaching the younger women. It doesn't have everything it needs to contend for the faith properly. So in this instance, God intervenes with judgment against those who are posing a threat to the infant church. In the last point, let's see the result of God's judgment. Point number six, the consecration of the church. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It says that twice, once in verse 5 and once in verse 11. Great fear came upon them. The judgment of God brings fear to the people of God and upon those who heard of it. So apparently news travels, right? It says not just not just the church, but those who heard of it. It's like people talk and they say, hey, guess what happened in my church this week? There was a guy who said he sold his field to support the ministry, but he lied about how much money he received. And, and he died right before the service in a meeting with the pastors. And, and then his wife came in for the women's afternoon Bible study, and she did the same thing. She lied, and then she died too. Like, how crazy is that? And, and, and the fear of God spreads to, to those who heard of it. And I, I think if we're honest that's something that we as American Christians don't have a healthy amount of. The fear of God, that sense of awe and reverence, that understanding that God is not just an impersonal presence, that he's not uh, just our buddy or an amenity to our lives, that he's our creator and sustainer, who is our judge, who has redeemed us from the debt we owe to him in order that we might live for him within the context of the church, so that we might represent him as his ambassadors of earth, that he is not to be trifled with, or his person is not to be treated as common or ordinary, nor is his name to be profaned or his laws ignored. That's what consecration means. It's the idea that we are to be set apart unto God. We are to be holy, and we don't get there without a proper fear of God. As we close, I want to tell you this text compels us to that proper fear of God. And maybe that's our lack. We don't fear God as we ought to. And I, I, I speak for myself. I know that I don't as I ought to. Or worse, worse yet, maybe you're Ananias this morning. You think that you're too far gone in your sin. I want you to know that 
there is hope. Just like Ananias and Sapphira had the opportunity when Peter confronted them to turn from their sins, so too you have the opportunity to hear this message and turn from your sin. You might be a believer entangled in your sin and you don't see a way out. You might be an unbeliever and you think you're too far gone for God or you might be an unbeliever and you don't care. I want to encourage you to turn back. The entirety of the Christian life is marked by this process called repentance. It's the spiritual activity of turning back from our sin in response to the truth of God's word. It's like we're going in one direction, pursuing our sin, deceived by our sin, heading to our destruction. And we hear God's word and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we turn around. We repent and we turn to the Lord. We keep doing that for the duration of our Christian lives. We don't just repent once and then you're done repenting. It's kind of like throughout the duration of your lives, you're walking this way, you're walking towards sin, and then you hear God's word and you turn around. And then a little bit later in your life, it's the same thing. You, you're on the path to sin, you hear God's word, and you turn around. And the, the whole Christian life should be marked by this process, right? Like that's what the Christian life looks like, this continual process of repentance. And the only reason we can do this down here, turning back from our sin constantly, is because of that up there, the cross. Uh, you and I can repent and turn from our sins because Christ has defeated our sins on the cross. Christ came, he lived perfectly and righteously in our place, and then he died for our sins on the cross. He was buried, and three days later he rose again, demonstrating that his life and death were acceptable to the Lord God. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So turn back. You might think yourself to be more despicable and deceitful than Ananias, but I've got good news for you. Though your sins are great, his grace is greater than your sin. God forgives sinners on the basis of Christ's perfect work, not because you can be better or good enough or turn over a new chapter in your life when you walk out of this place, or if you promise from this day forward to get really serious. No, God forgives sinners because of the cross of Christ, if they will repent and trust Christ. Scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Turn back. This morning, you can be as dirty and as filthy and despicable as Ananias, but on the authority of God's word, I want to tell you, you can be as clean and as pure as the Lord Jesus Christ if you turn from sin and place your faith in him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for uh, Christ and what he accomplished for us in his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. I pray for myself and each of my brothers and sisters here this morning that they would take hold 
of that glorious uh, good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.